Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Okay, Houston, the Challenger has landed. Houston Station, uh, we are ready for the event. Thank you. Welcome to Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson in partnership with the Naked Scientists. This time, who do you send on a one-way trip to Mars? Why risk is encouraged at the spaceport in the desert? And we'll be demonstrating how to capture space junk with a harpoon. So ensure that you're listening with safety goggles. Today, we're podcasting from inside Europe's largest space company at Astrium Stevenage site. More specifically from the Harpoon Test Range. We're joined by engineer Catherine Bennell and space scientist Ralph Cordy. Um, Catherine, Harpoon Test Range. I suspect not every space company has one of these. That's why it's quite echoey. Describe the room that we're in. We're in a long, rather empty room with whitewashed walls that we tend to bunker ourselves down in every few days to test and develop the Harpoon. At one end, we've got a satellite simulator where we rotate some satellite panels around, which we target with our harpoon from the other end 10 metres away. And uh, we're looking forward to having a go at firing it ourselves. Have you ever fired it, Ralph? No, they've never let me pull the trigger. Oh, well, if you're lucky, then you might get the chance. (laughs) Now, uh, the people who work here live and breathe space, because this is where spacecraft and satellites are built, be it for the International Space Station or missions such as Mars Express, Lisa Pathfinder, the forthcoming BepiColombo mission to Mercury or even the Mars rover. And Mars. Well, that's been in the news a lot recently, with more than 30,000 people around the world signing up for the one-way trip being offered to Mars. The Mars One project aims to put people on the surface of the red planet in 2023, where they'll live out the rest of their lives. Well, to achieve this, the organisation plans to send the first supply mission in 2016, a rover in 2018, and then all the hardware for a human mission in 2020. Well, the plan has really captured people's imaginations, but is it in any way feasible? particularly as Mars One plans to fund this massive undertaking by selling the TV rights. That's a question I put to founder Baz Lansdorp. I've been working on a a mission to Mars since 1997, on and off, and I could never figure out how you would finance a manned mission to Mars because the cost of sending the first four people is about six billion US dollars. And for me, the, the epiphany came when I saw the table of the revenues of the International Olympic Committee for the London Olympics. The revenue was more than 4 billion US dollars and the London Olympics are just three weeks of broadcasting. So having this big audience means that you can generate more than 1 billion US dollars per week just because the world is interested. And I am extremely sure that more people will be interested in a, in a mission to Mars than in the Olympic Games. Yes, okay, you might get the viewers when the mission goes off and and maybe from Mars, but how do you raise the money to get there in the first place? It's a sort of chicken and egg situation, isn't it? Yeah, I I just discussed landing on Mars is our biggest uh, technological challenge and what you described now is our biggest challenge overall, I think. It's the so-called funding gap, the time between uh, spending the money and earning the money. And that's going to be our biggest challenge, convincing our sponsors and investors that this is technically possible, that it will happen. Because if we can convince our sponsors and investors that it's, that it's possible, then they have the finances available to invest, to pre-finance the manned mission to Mars. 
And would you have the broadcasters follow the, the crew selection as, as well, the whole process? Is that the idea? Absolutely. We feel that it's not just an, a good way to, to finance a mission. Our goal is to, to send humans to Mars, and we need to finance that. And uh, involving the media in the selection process is, uh, is important in that. We also do it because the selection of the first four people going to Mars is an extremely important selection. And we're selecting the envoys of mankind to the next planet. At Mars One, we really feel that this should be a democratic process where people have their say in who gets to go. Of course, we have to make sure that, uh, that only qualified groups are eligible. But from those eligible groups, we want the audience to determine who they want as their ambassador to the Red Planet. So you have a sort of popularity contest. Well, I think that it's important that the people who are on Mars, who tell us the stories from Mars, who tell us what it is like to live on Mars, they need to be people that we like to listen to. They are our storytellers and they need to be people that we find interesting to listen to. How do you ensure it doesn't become Big Brother in space? Well, actually, we don't have to ensure that because the people on Mars will make sure that doesn't happen. They are in charge on Mars. If we say to them, we're going to t videotape you 24-7, they're just going to put duct tape over the cameras and there's nothing we can do about it. it it's never our intention to, to make uh, Big Brother from Mars. It's going to be live reporting from Mars, just like the Olympics are not uh, vulgar TV, TV while it's, it's, it's reality TV, like, right? We see those athletes, heroes, do remarkable things and it will be exactly the same for Mars. Baz Lansdorp, head of Mars One. Anyone fancy that? Well, you know, it's a beautiful spring day outside, outside this lab today, and I don't think I'd want to swap that for the cold, the desolation, the airlessness, and the, the one-way trip to Mars myself. Catherine? Well, I think Ralph has a good point, but the question is, Ralph, would you watch it on Mars <laughs> from your nice sunny garden? Because I think that's the point they're getting to. And this isn't the first time I've heard the idea of a media-funded space ticket, but it's the first time I've heard it going all the way to Mars. And in previous initiatives, which unfortunately didn't get off the ground, the difficulty was, first of all, in getting upfront money for a ticket that already exists, and the additional challenge that this team faces is going to be how to develop the technology. So it sounded like they wanted the journalist. Well, <laughs> he was suggesting I go. They're right in that it would be good to have people who can actually describe and be descriptive as opposed to somebody going all that way and going, it's all right. But I suppose this is all worrying about the icing on the cake when, as you suggest, Catherine, actually the big deal here is not who's going to go, but how on earth are they going to do this? And Ralph, you're not a great fan of any human missions to Mars. Well, I think there's got to be a really good reason for doing it, especially with technology as we envisage it now. We're limited in what we can do and in the foreseeable future for getting the amount of mass and humans to Mars, for sure. So we'd need a really good reason, whether that's compelling science, a desperate commercial reason, or something to do with security of our, of our species. So for, for, for me... I wouldn't go because I can't see a good reason for doing it. But 
Also, fundamentally, what are we talking about here? We're talking about transporting living human beings from the planet Earth and turning them ultimately into dead human beings on the planet Mars. And that, I just think, is outrageous. Mars is a fantastic resource for our species, if you like, to understand much of the story of the origin of our solar system, the very origin of life, how we came to be where we are. And the thought of... uh, consciously, if you like, contaminating that resource now is, uh, I think, to me, just out of, uh, out of the question. And, Catherine, you, you suggested that you would watch this. I mean, would it actually be that interesting? I was in the control room at Houston a couple of months ago and watching live pictures from the International Space Station with some astronauts floating around. It's deadly dull. I mean, the only difference, apart from watching a hotel corridor of people walking backwards and forwards, is they're floating backwards and forwards, but the novelty wears off pretty quickly. I think you'd certainly have the Apollo effect, where it's very, very interesting and captures everybody early on. But say a few weeks in, unless they're doing something exciting, I imagine things would taper off. But let's not forget, this is a big deal. If humans go to Mars, that's phenomenal. So that should capture the attention of everybody. Absolutely, and I'd be in front of the TV screen right at the beginning, but you're right, whether I would still be there six months later is is another issue. Well, actually, about six months ago, Astrium engineers here in the UK announced that they were developing a space harpoon to retrieve pieces of space junk or redundant satellites that pose a collision threat to orbiting spacecraft. Catherine, let's uh, take me through this. You gave a little description of the room at the beginning, Behind us is what looks like a long, sort of three-metre-long aquarium tank, I suppose you could say, on top of a table, with, at the end, I assume, is the sort of the harpoon equivalent of a crossbow. Exactly. So the aquarium you're referring to is to protect journalists and visitors such as yourself from us when we fire the harpoon. But in fact, a harpoon is now very accurate. It's fired from the end of this aquarium along the long length of the room, 10 metres away, to this satellite model, which in fact uses real satellite panels. Well, before we get into it, let's see it in action. What do you have to do first? Well, first of all, we have to turn on some gas valves and cylinders and like, basically uncheck the harpoon safety lock before right. pressing the big red button. presumably move away from the, the firing area. <laughs> that would be advisable, <laughs> okay, yes. Right. Let's head to we, towards the back of the room. Well, first of all, you'll need to put on your safety glasses. Excellent. All right. Safety glasses on. Uh, then we have to set up the gas. So you've got a couple of gas cylinders to the right there. Cylinders. Yep, we're at 76 bar and climbing. What sort of gas is it? It's nitrogen. So in space, we could use nitrogen gas to fire the harpoon, or we could use uh, pyrotechnics. And the whole point of this, Catherine, is to be able to capture satellites in orbit and send them out of orbit. Exactly. So at the moment, there's about 6,000 tonnes of space debris flying around the Earth. Many of them are spent rocket bodies and old satellites. And basically, at the moment, we have this situation where all the little pieces of debris can collide with the big ones and make them explode and have this huge exponential effect. And the, the best way to get rid of the debris and reduce the risk is to remove a number, say, five per year. So you take the big targets away. Still turning that valve there to get the gas pressure to exactly what you want. Excellent, we're pressurised. And so now we get the harpoon. And the harpoon, it's about 30 centimetres long and weighs 300 grams. 
and it has a nice guide rod that we put into this guide tube. It's very small, actually. You, you, it's not quite what I expect. I, I sort of think for a, a satellite, something an awful lot bigger, as opposed to, well, the silver part of the harpoon is not much longer than my hand. It's, and not, it's only about 15 centimetres long, and the reason for that is when it hits the satellite, you don't want it to puncture the whole way through and fly out the other side or hit something like tanks that it shouldn't. So we have quite a, a, cr- a large crushable about the size of a Coca-Cola can that basically acts as a stopper and stops it going through the panel. Quite um, a fearsome point on the end, though. It is quite a fearsome point, and in a minute we'll watch it go through the panels like butter. Mm-hmm. But first of all, I'm going to get an unbarbed version so we can pull it out. And have another all right, let's walk up that back to the other end now. What's it made from? So it's just made of aluminium, just standard aluminium made in our workshop. And at this point, we haven't designed it to be really accurate or to have high tolerancing. But it's still, from 10 metres away, can target the same area within about 10 centimetres. So when we actually fire at a satellite, we can choose where on the satellite we want to attach before we fire. So I'll place it in carefully now into the tube. So it's almost like popping it into a, as you would a... A cannon, really, isn't it? Exactly. Popping it, but it's very, a very narrow, just a centimetre or so across exactly. tube, as if ready to fire. That's right. So we're going to aim at the model of a satellite, and we're going to put it on a rot- rotating uh, table. So it's going to rotate at about one rotation per minute, which is what we'd expect to see on orbit. So we're going to head up there now and switch that on. Okay. And the satellite itself really is a big, well, giant silver box. It is a giant silver box, and the reason for that is to make it as representative as possible. In space, the big satellites are covered with MLI for thermal reasons or radiator areas, and we've tried to get different types of surfaces to aim at and test. And it does, because we've been in um, Astrium satellites, both Richard and myself, in some of your clean rooms before for for other reports, and it is exactly the right shape and size of a big silver box. These right. are some nice offcuts. So if we hit this big red button now, Excellent. it should start to turn. And the satellite starts to move. So now we need to imagine we're in space. And here's a rotating satellite in orbit. And you've got your little spacecraft with your harpoon heading towards it. That's right. So the spacecraft will approach to a distance of about... 100 metres away and check that we've got the right satellite, do a bit of a survey and understand how it's tumbling before making a closer approach. This closer approach will go to approximately 10 to 20 metres before waiting for the right part of the satellite to come into view and firing. That's right, because you don't want it to sort of bounce off a corner, do you? No, we don't. Well, actually, the harpoon's very strong. It's designed to go through many layers of material. For example, if there was an electronics box on the other side, it could cope with that. But one thing you do want to avoid, for example, is batteries. And we're not going to go up and take down any satellite that the operator doesn't want it to be taken down. So we're going to know what's inside these panels and be able to target accordingly. Right, well, let's head right back down to the, the firing end of the room getting lots of exercise on this podcast aren't we this is unusual for us i'm very intrigued by the firing button that looks fantastic right, shall we have a countdown oh please we're going to arm and just as soon as the right part of the satellite comes into view we're going to fire and it is a red button that's what i like about it it is a, <laughs> a red nice button big red button so i guess we could start 10 <laughs> how about five five, five four, four three, three. 
And it's stuck in. We can see it hanging out, a bit like a an arrow in a target for archery. That would hit a, a satellite. Would it be pulled into... Because obviously you've got to mount this harpoon on some sort of spacecraft in the exactly. first place. So the harpoon will be attached to our chaser satellite, our small chaser satellite, by a tether. And we have to use this tether to de-spin the junk satellite. So as the satellite spins around, we have to pull back like a yo-yo and then it will continue to yo-yo back and forward until we've stabilised it properly. Once it's stabilised, we'll pull the satellite round into the right direction for deorbiting and then do a big deorbit burn to take it back into a safe place over, say, the South Pacific. Now, you announced that you were you know, working on this in October 2012. How has it progressed since then? Well, since October 2012, we've progressed a lot. Uh, Initially, we were using off-the-shelf harpoons for things like fishing. Now we've made our own prototype, our own representative prototype for flight. So what you just saw launched there would be good enough to take down, say, a satellite as big as eight tonnes from low Earth orbit, just in that 300-gram harpoon. But this is 10 metres away. I'm assuming you're going to be a lot further, up to 100 metres away. Well, no, in fact, 10 or 20 metres would be sufficient. But that's something we'll refine later on based on the stability analyses for the tether. So it's not just a mad stunt, because I know harpoons have been considered in in other missions, and NASA had one, for example, that they were devising to go into a comet to collect material from a comet. At first sound, you do think, this is mad, but actually, this is not just mad, this is crazy and it will work. That's very true. In fact, when I first heard of the idea, I thought it was mad. But I was convinced really quickly because it was found to generate no additional debris when it hits. So when it goes through the satellite panel, the panel just peels back. It doesn't cause explosions. It doesn't cause rupturing. What it does do is give us a really elegant solution, a lightweight and simple solution to remove satellites. And how would you actually aim it, though, from from the ground? Because we're here, you can see it, you can wait for the satellite to be facing you at the right position, the right point, up in space. Will it all be done remotely via camera? Well, in the first mission, which would be a demonstration mission, there would be a human in the loop, is what we'd anticipate. So we'd have what we call LIDAR, which are light-based radars, to have a look at what's going on, to make sure we're looking at the right part of the satellite. For ongoing missions, for a future uh, case where we take down lots of different things per mission, we would have an autonomous system, which would rely on these sensors that we're also developing at Astrium. And Ralph, how likely is this to happen? I mean, has the problem got so bad that you need something? Clearly, the amount of use we're making of uh, the the orbits around the Earth, I mean, this is such an important part of our, our everyday infrastructure now. And in recent years, the problem has really been highlighted to all the national agencies, the owners and operators of, of satellites. So, yes, this is something whose, whose time really has come. We've really got to now take the steps to demonstrate harpoon technology, other technologies that may be appropriate for different forms of satellites. Might Make sure we're moving practically towards turning this into a real technique for removing junk from orbit. Right, well... Let's just pop down to the other end, see the impact, and then switch our revolving satellite off, and then we think it's mission accomplished. Oh, yeah, you can see. It's almost like a bullet hole, isn't it? 
It is a little bit. <laughs> I'll come over here and switch off the big red button. And the satellite is stabilised. <laughs> Thank you, that was brilliant. <laughs> this is the Space Boffins podcast. Our supporters include ABSL, who are making batteries for the new James Webb Space Telescope. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Space Boffins. Now, beside a dusty runway in the Mojave Desert, the future of private spaceflight is taking shape. If you were at the Mojave Air and Spaceport on April the 29th, for instance, you would have witnessed Virgin's rocket ship breaking the sound barrier. Mojave is also home to space plane company X-Core and the lesser-known firm Maston Space Systems, who are developing their own reusable vertical takeoff and landing rockets. Well, I went to Mojave a few months ago and we heard from X-Core in our last podcast. This time, I'd like you to meet Stuart Witt, the CEO of the Spaceport, and David Maston, the founder of Maston Space Systems. And ask Stuart first what the thinking was behind the spaceport. You need a place where they have permission to do these things. Uh, Western society has become enormously risk-adverse in the last 30 years. I mean, here in the States, you can't ride a tricycle or your kid can't unless it's wearing a helmet or you get a ticket or go to jail. You can't drive a car without buckling up. I mean, there's so many things you can't do. And that permeates all of society and becomes the framework within which you live. We tried to break that down and say, you know, what were the constraints on Ferdinand Magellan? 93% of the sailors died, and that mission changed the world that we live in today. We would like to capture the framework that enabled a Magellan mission for the Dave Mastons of the world. I don't want him worried about what he can and cannot do. That is my job. I want him to be creative and be able to use the absolute totality of his creative energy with his team to be successful to achieve breakthroughs. You can't do that when you're forced to be safe. So, Dave, what are you doing here? What's the, what's the big plan? So our, our big plan is to really bring down the cost of space transportation, uh, whether that's you know, just going up to the edge of space uh, in a suborbital vehicle or going all the way to Mars. Uh, in fact, actually, uh, right before I came over here, I was working on a concept for a Mars lander uh, that, we, that we hope to see being used on Mars at some point in the future. But, I mean, really the whole thing about us is we're trying to bring that cost down, you know, make it so that we can send more more mass to the surface of, of various planets uh, or even just into space at a much lower price. When I mentioned that I was coming here to a few people, they said, oh, Mastons, they're always firing rockets off. I mean, is that basically the, the technology you're developing, rockets? So in a lot of ways it is rockets, but I think what we're really developing is a process for how to deal with the rockets in a way that's safe and doesn't require a standing army to support that. Uh, Our biggest thing is we looked at the airline industry and said, okay, how many people does it actually take to maintain and fly a 737 or a 747? And how many people does it take currently to support a single launch of a single space shuttle or uh, an Atlas V? How do we get that down closer to how, how the airlines operate? Give me an example, then, of a, a specific project that you're working on that's close to becoming reality. Uh, actually, there's a vehicle we've been flying quite a bit recently called Zero, uh, X-A-E-R-O, and it has been flying as often as three times a week with a crew of about six people. And unfortunately, we, we, uh, we had some uh, unfortunate incident with it, but uh, 
you know, we're building the, the next vehicle already and should have it up and flying within the next couple of weeks. You said an unfortunate incident. Did it crash? Uh, it did crash. It did crash. We uh, Basically, after 110 flights, uh, it had some wear and tear that we didn't pick up in our vehicle inspections. How do you fund the development, and how long can you fund it for? Well, you look at the, the shuttle, for instance, funded by the taxpayer, essentially. You're not. Well, uh, the initial funding for the company uh, basically came out of my own pocket. Um, and then as we started building uh, some minor successes, we were able to track some private investment. Uh, our current CEO, uh, Joel Scotkin, came on board, brought a bunch of money with him. Uh, and that's helped quite a bit. Um, of course, when I keep saying, you know, these, these amounts of monies, we're talking very low millions of dollars. And at this point... Still millions of dollars. <laughs> it's, it's, but it's not billions. It's a very small amount uh, for the aerospace industry. I mean, it's uh, basically equal to buying a private jet. And how much difference does it make that you're not the only people here? There are other companies doing similar but related things. So there's sort of uh, two conflicting desires that I had uh, that caused me to move to Mojave. Uh, the first was that I-, I wanted, you know, the privacy and to be away from lots of people. And we don't have everybody just, you know, looking over our shoulders all the time or complaining about the noise, what have you. Um, at the same time, the other thing that attracted me was that there are other people doing similar things here. Uh, it sort of became the Silicon Valley for space in-, in a way. And that's really what attracted me is, you know, the... the the, 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 the fact that, you know, I've got people here that, you know, whether it's my own employees, myself, whatever, we can go out with others, and if we had a bad day, we can commiserate over a beer, and if we had a good day, we can all celebrate together. And, Stuart, how do you keep the companies here? Because, I mean, Virgin already set up their own spaceport in New Mexico. Xcore are moving away from here. Can you keep this critical mass of, of people together? Well, when I came here, we had 400 employees and 14 companies at the airport. Today, I've got 73 companies and 2,600 employees. But I recognize that if we are successful, Dave will be flying all over the world. Xcore will be flying all over the world. And Sir Richard will be flying all over the world. Hopefully, Dream Chaser will be flying all over the world. Elon flying all over the world. And we are creating an industry. This is not barnstorming 101-1927 where you're forced to take off and land at that pasture. This is 2012, and we're planning for 2020, where humanity will have many vehicles to fly into space, endo, or exo-atmospheric. And we're creating a change in attitude. Our goal is to develop these systems. Our goal is to see them flying worldwide. Stuart Witt, the CEO of the Mojave Air and Spaceport, and David Maston, founder of Maston Space Systems. Could you tell that uh, Stuart Witt was a former test pilot? The space industry, Ralph, is very risk-averse. Has, has he got a point there? I think there's some interesting stuff there about risk and about who can take risks. You know, he appeared to have not a casual attitude, but a, perhaps a, a slightly more relaxed attitude to risks, particularly risks to, to, to human life in there as well. Now, I wonder what sort of organisations are actually best able to deal with that sort of risk in development. You know, would a private company be able to survive the problems that, you know, even NASA faced with the loss of two space shuttles? Would a private company be able to come back from that and sustain a programme? I, I must say, I've got my doubts that, that, that companies with investors would be able to pursue that sort of thing. Whereas governments, if they're choosing to do that, 
yes, perhaps they, they can. So for me, it's a, it's a difference between what the private sector could perhaps do in the way of risks and what the public sector might be able to do. Uh, the, the other side of that, I suppose, is that governments can become risk-averse as well. I mean, you mentioned the the space shuttles. Actually, the space shuttle was pretty reliable over its lifetime, and yet we lost two shuttles and all the astronauts on board. I guess we we look at governments, and governments look to to their electorate almost as barometers of what a public view of acceptable risk is. So there's, there's, there's clearly been a development since the, the, the times of Magellan, for example, where I think having a huge proportion of your crew losing their lives yeah, on 93% a... 93% is that. Is, that's not an acceptable. I don't yes. think that would be acceptable to governments, to the general population or to industry. Moving on now, because more than 9,000 people across 44 countries recently took part in NASA's International Space Apps Challenge. It was the largest hackathon ever held, where teams had to tackle a range of space-related challenges by developing software, hardware and create visualisations to show and apply what's been learnt from space. Kate Arkless-Gray took part and managed to grab Chris Gertie from NASA's Open Innovation Programme after the London Challenge. It was really an amazing event, both locally and globally. We're just starting to discover what's happened at a global level. I've been in London, one of five UK locations, and we're just just blown away. It's been an incredible coming together of, of designers and technologists and engineers and people who want to give to humanity in a way that they don't maybe get to in their regular jobs or, or at school or, or whatnot. We've given them that opportunity, this tangible acknowledgement that the best answers may not come from inside our space program at NASA. And so we've kind of left it open-ended, and we're really happy with with the results. And the solutions that people come up with, do you think there's any way that those can be taken forward and actually maybe utilized by NASA, or is this just like a fun weekend and people do a bit of coding? The way we set up the framework was so that all of the projects worked on are under an open source license of some sort. So that means that this work can be taken by the public or the people who did the work themselves in any way that's appropriate. So that could mean internally to NASA, we garner some interest in this and and take it under our wing, or maybe they can take that solution and uh, start a business with it, or whatever the opportunity is appropriate for that specific project. So you say that NASA might take some of these things under its wing, what does that mean for the people that spend the weekend? You know, some of them stayed up all night working on these challenges. Will they get some kind of recognition or would NASA invite them to actually continue working on them or, or be a part of that when it goes forward? NASA has a lot of different partnerships at a lot of different levels. This would start to fall into that that model. If there was someone outside of NASA that had a resource that we were interested in, we'd engage in a conversation and we'd you know, just engage them as we would a professor somewhere that had more knowledge in something than we did. And that could lead to anything from a, a longstanding Space Act agreement to just an exchange of emails and ideas. And, and then we would both go our ways and, and produce better products, projects down the road. You came over from the States to, to the London event. What kind of thing you were expecting from the event and did it meet those expectations or did it even better them? Part of the philosophy of a hackathon is to not go in with any specific expectations. Try not to decide on a threshold of success or failure because when you leave it open-ended like that, it, it gives a little less 
pressure to the participants to, to come up with something particular. And when, when you do open it up, then creativity comes out, the innovation comes out. So we held ourselves back from thinking, oh, we're going to have this many solutions, this many challenges solved. And so when we started getting all the emails, it was really incredible just to see these amazing solutions come out and uh, websites that were already active and databases that were populated by NASA data in a way that we hadn't seen before. And I think we'll be joined by a lot of folks within NASA that maybe didn't take notice of the event itself, but now see all this great stuff out there and, and it will hopefully be really impressed. NASA's Chris Gertie talking to Space Boffin regular Kate Arkless-Gray. And the good news is that Kate's team won a place in the international judging round with their app T-10, designed to help astronauts take photos from space. The app mixes space station location data with real-time weather information so that astronauts get an alarm when it's clear over their selected locations. The Earth version of T-10 alerts you to when the station is flying overhead And when you indicate that you're going to wave, it lets the astronauts know. The team needs your vote, so follow them on Twitter at T, that's T-E-E, minus 10, for more information. And more good news in that Kate sailed through to the next round of the Lynx Space Challenge to take part in the physical and mental challenge at a location somewhere in London in front of a live audience. And you'll be there too. Yes, I know. After being inspired by Kate in our last podcast, I also entered, and despite having only four weeks to get votes, I've managed to get into the next round in the UK. But it looks like Kate and I are actually only 15 women that have got through um, into the next round out of 87,000 people who entered in the UK. Do you know what the physical challenge actually involves? <laughs> I'm sure it doesn't involve what I do, which is drinking white wine and eating chocolate. Catherine, did, did you not think about applying? Well, to be honest, I saw the ads, which I thought were quite funny, but I just never really thought it would be open to women. Yeah, I'm, I regret not applying now, actually. It sounds like fun. Yeah, it certainly didn't. And there rests our point about why we applied in the first place. And, and Ralph, we, you said you didn't want to go to Mars. Would you like to go into space? Oh, hey, the chance to orbit our Earth, our planet. Yes, absolutely. And that's the Space Boffins podcast, produced by Boffin Media in partnership with The Naked Scientists. And we're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and with a grant from the UK Space Agency. Our thanks to space scientist Ralph Cordy and engineer Catherine Bennell, both from Astrium Stevenage site, inside their rather marvellous harpoon test range. Do follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll be back in a month. Thanks for listening.